So you're looking for a unique way to show off your company, organization, or event, right? You're drowning in unwanted branded pens, stress balls, and sunglasses? The guys at Keep It Simple Socks have the solution you're looking for. They are your custom sock experts based right out of Central Ohio, specializing in working with you to create and supply your own custom designs. Head on over to Keep It Simple Socks today. That's keepitsimplesocks.com today and get started on working with their designers on creating your own unique custom design sock to stand out from the crowd. Put your best foot forward with Keep It Simple Socks today. speaking is Guillermo Barro Scaloto. It's April of 2007 in Argentina, and he's speaking to the fans of one of the largest soccer teams in the world, Boca Juniors. He's telling the fans that he'll be leaving them for a while, but that he will always have them in his heart. Then he drops the mic, rips off the jacket he's wearing, and reveals a Boca Juniors jersey, his Boca Juniors jersey, signed by all the players still on the team. He'll always love these fans, and they'll always love him. There's a banner in the stadium that says, Now you're going to dance past Beckham. We want you to come back. It's far from the only one. Dozens of banners that thank Chapita, El Mayizo, and Guije dot the stands at La Bombonera, the stadium where this player, who goes by all of those nicknames, had some of his best moments. The fans in this stadium are worshipping Guillermo, who is in street clothes, and being begged to come back. But Guillermo Barros-Skiloto is not leaving them to go to Real Madrid, or Bayern Munich, or Manchester United. And he's not going to England or Spain to face off with David Beckham. No, this Argentine legend is leaving all of this praise and adoration behind to go to America. To join Major League Soccer in Columbus. To understand why it was a big deal for the Columbus crew to get Guillermo you need to understand why he was a big deal in the first place. This is the story of how Columbus won the cup. He, he's the one that initially uh, said, hey, Guillermo Barros-Scaloto could be available. I knew of him. I had seen him, but I did not know to the extent what he was to Boca Juniors. I mean, he is a living legend. The, the titles won, the victories. It's like, okay, is that like a quarterback stat? Oh, this this quarterback has so many wins. It's like you're surrounded by so many great players. Does it really matter? That was the other thing about that team. I mean, even if people weren't playing all the time, I mean, they brought it to practice every day. Maybe I'm the problem. Essentially saying, maybe I should quit. And the next day, the headline in the district, Schmidt says he might quit. Episode 2, Gijay and the Rocket. I'm J.D. Smith. Soccer passion is on another level in Argentina. 90% of its residents claim allegiance to one of its clubs. Their professional league has been in existence since 1891, before the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, or even the American League of Major League Baseball were formed. Only England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the Netherlands have been playing professional soccer longer than Argentina. And this is the culture Guillermo Barros-Skiloto and his twin brother Gustavo grew up around as children in La Plata, just outside Buenos Aires. Both Guille and Gustavo played soccer in the youth system of Gimnasia, the local club. They were eventually signed by the club to play professionally, and together they helped Gimnasia win the Centenario Cup in 1993, a tournament organized to celebrate the history of soccer in Argentina. Even early in his career, Guille was thrust into the bright spotlight of his country's favorite sport. By the way, the team Gimnasia and the Scaloto Twins defeated in the Centenario Cup? It was a team called River Plate. It might have been because of that game or for another reason altogether. But in 1996, River attempted to sign Guillermo. But the deal fell through. Instead, one year later, Guille joined up with a different team the hated rivals of River Plate, Boca Juniors. The Telegraph in London called the rivalry between Boca Juniors and River Plate, otherwise known as the Super Classico, the best rivalry in the world. 
it's certainly the most intense. Between Boca and River, the two clubs share an estimated 70% of Argentina's soccer fans. That's roughly 28 million people. Both clubs have won just about every trophy in Argentina. And the deciding game of the 2018 Copa Libertadores finals, which was played between these two bitter rivals, it had to be played in Spain due to uncontrollable fan violence. Clearly, these two teams hate each other, but only one of them could have Guillermo. Guillermo signing with Boca was impactful, to say the least. Once he arrived at La Bombonera, Boca's home stadium, Guille constantly found ways to torment the River Plate fans by scoring back-breaking goals in the rivalry. Here's one example. getting into broadcasting do not attempt that goal call at home that's only for trained professionals that goal from may 13th of 2000 early in the second playing of the super classico that season helped boca to a 1-1 tie in other words it saved the blue and gold fans from the ultimate embarrassment in their minds a loss to river but what's great is guillermo's reaction after the ball goes into the net he acts like he's just found the key to a vault full of priceless treasure that's part of why Guiche was so beloved by fans of the teams he played for. Many of the goals he scored were tremendous, but the way he reacted to them was equally beautiful. His typical highlight video includes multiple scenes of Guiche running around with a shocked look on his face, flailing wildly with no clear direction or plan, driven only by pure joy after scoring a goal. It's the type of reaction a fan would have if he accidentally got onto the field. Guillermo Barros-Skiloto celebrated 87 goals during his 302 games with Boca Juniors, where he showcased an uncanny ability for being in the right place at the right time. He always seemed to slip into spots vacated by defenders who were busy looking at the flashier, faster, more complicated players dancing around the fringes of the 18-yard box. Many times the ball wouldn't come to Guiche, but when it did, he rarely missed. His game was simple and beautiful, the epitome of how a soccer player's game should be described. Guiche eventually became one of just six men who have statues dedicated to them in the museum located at the stadium. By the way, uh, this club, Boca Juniors, they've been around since 1905, so that's kind of a big deal. His statue sits between Martin Palermo, another Boca legend who is the leading scorer in club history, and Diego Maradona. Pretty much soccer royalty in Argentina. Here's Duncan Outen, crew legend and one-time teammate of Guillermo Barros-Skiloto. To explain it further, you know, obviously, I'm a big football, soccer fan. For you Americans, I, I I knew of him, I had seen him, but I did not know to the extent what he was to Boca Juniors. I mean, he is a living legend. So why would this beloved superstar of soccer in Argentina leave it all behind to come to MLS? We'll explore that after the break. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Cup. A great deal of this podcast talks about the head coach of the crew in 2008, Siggy Schmidt. But sadly, Siggy passed away on Christmas Day of 2018. Many of the people you hear on this podcast were interviewed before Siggy's passing, or really even before many of them knew the issues he was dealing with. Still, everyone that I talked to spoke highly of Siggy Schmidt, and as you'll see throughout this podcast, his impact on soccer in the U.S. was tremendous. Siggy's family has asked that those who wish to honor his memory do so by donating to the men's soccer program at UCLA. And I think that's a great idea. Donations in memory of Siggy Schmidt can be directed to the attention of Emily Lerner of UCLA Athletics at 310-206-3302. Or you can email her at elerner, L-E-R-N-E-R, at athletics.ucla.edu. I hope you consider doing that, and we're all going to miss Siggy. Thanks for everything, Coach.
By 2007, Guillermo Barro Scalotto's legend in Boca history is secure. He's been part of 16 trophies in his time there, and the fans know his importance to the legacy of the club. But he's not getting to play as often as he would like with the first team. Which makes sense. He's a 33-year-old forward, and even the biggest legends don't get to play forever. As Guillet begins to weigh his options, his attention turns to America. His timing couldn't have been better. Major League Soccer found one of the biggest sports stories of the decade when they enticed David Beckham to join the LA Galaxy in January of 2007. The league had just created a rule that allowed teams to sign one player that didn't fully count against the salary cap. In effect, an MLS team could pay any player in the world any amount they wanted, as long as it was just one player. And while not every team took advantage of that rule, the signing of David Beckham raised the profile of MLS around the world. Technically, Guillermo Barroscoloto wasn't signed as a designated player. But suddenly, every team in MLS was looking for star power. If the Galaxy could coax David Beckham to MLS, could Columbus do the same with an Argentina legend like Scalotto? I mean, the answer is very clearly yes. That's what this podcast is about. So how did it happen? Former general manager of the crew, Mark McCullers, explains how the deal went down. The league at the time had a handful of, uh, I think they called them consultants. I call them agents. Some people might call them scouts that, that were working on their behalf and therefore on the team's behalf to identify opportunities with international players. One of the guys that I was working with is a guy named Alejandro Tarusiak. And Alejandro was the South America but Argentina scout and representative, a good, good guy. We got along well. So we were working with him for some time in identifying different opportunities to fill the needs of the team and the club. Uh, he, he's the one that initially uh, said, hey, you know, Guillermo Barros-Scoloto could, could be available, and that's where we got the, the opportunity. Among MLS fans, rumors started circulating that Guillermo and the crew were close to a deal to bring the star player to MLS. Patrick Golden of MassiveReport.com remembers trying to find out everything he could about Guillet. I think it was way back on the Fox Soccer Channel, uh, had a, a the last Guillermo game in the Boca Juniors uniform and uh, I think he got on in the last 10 minutes and you really didn't get to see a whole bunch of them but the way the crowd reacted to this player uh, his, his greatness didn't necessarily come through on a bunch of YouTube highlights like uh, other Argentine playmakers where you see uh, you know, Raquel May or, or somebody like that Diego Maradona but the level of intensity that the fans had for sending off Guillermo uh, it caught my attention. Mark McCullers watched it too, but the crew general manager had a slightly better seat. I went to Buenos Aires. I attended his final match in a Boca Juniors uniform at La Bombonera. I've been blessed to have a lot of great sports experiences in my life and in my career. My dad was a college football coach, so my entire life, one of the top three sports moments in my life was being at that game and watching him say goodbye to the fans. It's really hard to describe, um, but I know a lot of soccer fans get it. You know, they see it, they consume it. But the passion and the energy just was pouring out of the stadium. The stadium was alive, and it's, it's such a unique venue. As Mark McCullers watched that game, he knew there was still more work to be done on the contract. At that moment, we didn't have him all the way locked and, and delivered. I, I went and spent some time with him at his house in La Plata after that game. His kids were around. Alejandro was there. Wife served hors d'oeuvres. You know, and so I had the media guide out, and I was, you know, talking to him about the club, talking to him about Ziggy, about Columbus. I think people probably don't appreciate the relationship-building side of what happens, you know, in these circumstances. So with Ziggy, with Guillermo, it's, it's important, and you either click or you don't. In this case, we did. Despite the mutual desire, both sides still had to figure out exactly how this deal would work out. Uh, it was complicated. Uh, I mean, here's a guy who had been accustomed to being you know, compensated at a very high level. He didn't you know, really understand the rules, uh, the concept of a salary cap. Uh, or or designated player or any of those of those sorts of things. So you know we we had to get a, a little bit creative in how we structured the, the you know the contract. 
But again, I think you know that's that was part of my role and my contribution to you know that side of the organization is is being a creative problem solver and saying, hey, how about if we do this or what about this incentive or you know these sorts of things. Yeah, you know, ultimately we, we we got to it. The signing of Guillermo was announced on April seventeenth, two thousand seven, and he would be joining the crew in a few weeks, but not before he was given a chance to wave goodbye one last time to his fans in a ceremony you heard at the start of this podcast. That's the star power of Guillermo in Argentina. However, when he arrived in the U.S., there wasn't a ton of fanfare. No big welcome party, no giant stadium full of people screaming his name. But maybe that's exactly what Guillermo wanted. You can imagine, here's a guy who can't walk out his front door, you know, in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, in La Plata. And so I think he was looking for a little tranquility and frankly, maybe safety, you know, for, for his family. When he came here, I remember he, he, they would not have babysitters for their kids because they couldn't do it in Argentina because they were so scared that someone was going to kidnap their kids and, you know, a, a babysitter might call someone from one of the gangs and they might ransom him for all this money. So he came here with that same feeling. Obviously, signing Guillermo Barros-Scalotto was momentous for the crew in hindsight. At the time, however, there was plenty of doubt about the crew's new signing. After all, the guy was 33 and wasn't getting first-team minutes at Boca. Were the crew going to get the legend, the resume, the accolades? Or were the crew going to get a real player out of this deal? Patrick Golden from Massive Report says he wasn't so sure. The the titles won, the victories. It's like, okay, is that like a... A, a quarterback stat, you know, oh, this this quarterback has so many wins. It's like you're, you're surrounded by so many great players. Does it really matter? And at Boca Juniors, Guije was asked to pounce on the end of stellar passes and complicated buildup, pulled off by some of the best soccer players in the world. How would he handle a different role where he had to facilitate and not just finish? Those questions and more were weighing on crew fans' minds in early 2007 as they tried to forget the season prior which was one of the worst in crew history. But Guije wasn't the only one joining the team around this time. The crew also traded away forward Joseph Ingueña for a veteran MLS forward by the name of Alejandro Moreno. The Venezuelan forward had been drafted by the LA Galaxy in 2002 after completing a successful collegiate career at UNC Greensboro. Ali Moreno went on to score 20 goals over the course of his first five seasons in the league splitting time between Los Angeles, San Jose, and Houston. Moreno was seen as a steady hand in MLS at the time, but not necessarily looked at as a premier scorer in the league. Still, that reputation did not dissuade Siggy Schmidt and the crew Brain Trust, who thought Moreno was just the thing they needed at the top of their formation. So I, I don't want to say that he just could draw fouls, but you know he knew how to, to be in the right spot at the right time playing off that back shoulder, making the right move, uh, never the fastest guy, but holding off the defense and then uh, making the right finish. Hardworking, same level of craftiness that, that gets him to the right position at the right time to, to make the right play. Sometimes that's uh, maybe going down with a little, uh, little bit of contact, or maybe sometimes that's, that's digging a ball out and, and pushing upfield and making the right pass. Just an invaluable piece to that puzzle. I mean, he was probably like the perfect player that they needed. Once again, here's Steve Sirk, author of A Massive Season, a book about the 2008 crew. Because of, the, you know, the, the strength and the way he played, I mean, he, there would be contact or something approximating contact around him a lot. And, you know, so he could draw those crucial fouls. And then guess what? You've got Guillermo lining up over the ball with someone like Chad Marshall on the end. You know, even just winning those fouls, that could be a huge weapon. That forward in Siggy Schmidt's formation was expected to take the first early pass from his teammates and keep possession of it until the rest of the reinforcements could arrive. Often that player took quite a beating from much larger defenders who had no regard for opposing players' ligaments or bone structure. Alejandro Moreno was perfect for this role because he turned out to be a tireless worker who tracked down tons of passes while patiently getting the crap kicked out of him, drawing fouls that allowed the crew to get dangerous free kick opportunities. Unfortunately for some crew players, tireless was not a word that could be used initially to describe Guillermo Barros-Scalotto, at least not when he arrived to the team's practice facility in Obets. He shows up, and he is not a practice player. That was the other thing about that team. I mean, even if people weren't playing all the time, I mean, they brought it to practice every day. 
And then Gijay, you know, shows up and it's like, yawn. You know, the players from that team, they're like, you know, he showed up and they were just like, seriously? You know, when he, when he first came, I'll be 100% honest with you, I thought he was pretty bang average. At training, he wasn't very good. I think a lot of people worried. He was just, you know, another example. And there have been so many of them in MLS where you had an older player come in, you know, for just kind of the paycheck, a little paid vacation. I mean, you don't really see that as much anymore. But in the early days, I mean, the, you know, the league was rife with players like that who had come in and just kind of taken the money and for minimal effort. Yeah, there were some people that maybe thought that his um, tactics were not conducive with America's hardest working team, frankly, our brand. First game you played, everyone was kind of like, oh, all right, he's a see a Saturday kind of guy. And, you know, and they came and they quickly came to realize like, OK, that's that's just how he is, because, yeah, he's 34, 35 years old. He knows what he needs to do to get ready for Saturday. He's, you know, saving his body and, and his energy. And uh, boy, does he deliver. DJ's an extremely intelligent guy. I mean, his dad, I think, is a doctor. I mean, he's, he's well-educated. He knew how to prepare himself. He, he knew what he needed, and he also knew the risk that he shouldn't be taking. Some players and some coaches probably wasn't how they would like him to, to handle his business, but he knew what he was doing. It's just that we weren't good at working with him, and he wasn't good at working with us on the field. And I think once we realized what he could be and he realized hey this is what i need to do in mls and we kind of found our middle ground i mean i think history speaks for itself right gijay's arrival didn't just change the game for his teammates and coaches however it also changed things for dave stephanie the team's longtime public relations guru who was in charge of getting things like player interviews for media outlets Right out of the gates, there was tremendous interest from Argentine media and international media. One of his first road trips after signing, I think he went to Casey first, but then we went to uh, New York not too long after that. And Juan Pablo Angel had just signed with, with Red Bull. And there was incredible interest from the international media, South American media, to cover that, that confrontation, kind of the Boca River in MLS. As soon as we arrived at the hotel, the league's Hispanic media contingent was there waiting for us. It was pre-scheduled, but they, they did photo ops together. They were interviewed together and separately. And those types of things happened in, in most markets. We obviously didn't have, you know, there wasn't a Juan Pablo in every market where, where it was a uh, you know, where there was kind of a rivalry angle. But anytime we went to, to the major markets, there was a sizable media contingent. Naturally, with all that interest back home, some of the fans in Argentina wanted to find out what Guille was up to with his new team. His signing created fans in Argentina immediately, certainly among Boca fans and probably most specifically among Boca fans. But we would hear reports and even see photos from La Bombonera of people wearing uh, wearing crew jerseys. Yeah, I remember Mark McCuller saying that uh, you, you couldn't swing a dead cat in Buenos Aires without hitting a crew jersey, which I got a kick out of in a pretty evocative way of, of uh, making that point. Always stuck with me. Another dangerous weapon the crew acquired at the start of the 2007 season was Robbie Rogers. A promising young winger at just 19 years of age, Rogers had played a season of college soccer at Maryland before signing with Dutch team here in Veen. Although he didn't play for the first team in his time there, Robbie Rogers helped lead the reserves to a championship. He was also seeing more regular call-ups to the various U.S. national youth teams, the U18s, the U20s, and he even represented the U.S. in the 2007 FIFA U20 World Cup. Robbie Rogers was gifted with two things that are always valued in soccer, blazing speed and a good left foot. As such, he was often seen sprinting down the left side of the field, trying to beat a defender one-on-one. -on -one or at least draw a foul that could set up a potentially dangerous free kick. Here's Patrick Golden talking about Robbie Rogers' role on the team. Really being able to use his, his speed to really get behind defenses, they had to either respect him and back off and open up uh, space for, for the rest of the offense, or if, if they really were concerned about Guillermo, he had his angles and Guillermo would find him. He was able to punish defenses, you know, even if he never had the ball. He was the perfect foil for a team that was built more off a of craft, and gave them that lethal speed advantage. This team is not the same without a, a speedy left winger like uh, Rodgers there. With Rodgers, Moreno, and Guijay in the fold, the 2007 team suddenly had quite a bit of offensive firepower. Robbie brought the speed, Ali Moreno brought the toughness and hustle, 
and Guijet brought the savvy and vision to put his teammates in great positions to score goals. With steady Eddie Gavin as the other winger opposite of Rodgers, the crew also had two young players on the edges who would be able to provide defensive support and make life miserable for opposing wingers and outside backs. It's a really good thing Siggy Schmidt went out and acquired this talent because the start of the 2007 season was not at all promising. The crew scored just four goals in their first seven games, and many fans worried that the goal-scoring woes of the past three seasons were continuing. While that 2007 team was working out its growing pains, there were questions in the front office about how Siggy Schmidt saw his role going forward with the crew. Once again, here's Duncan Outen. During that 2007, and I, I don't, I, I, again, my memory's hazy from taking plenty of bangs to the head, um, so I can't give you an exact time or date, but Mark McCullers called me up for a meeting at Wendell's, of all places, in Westerville, up there. Wendell's, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, so I went up and it was kind of dark and, you know, interesting. So we had this, this meeting and he kind of said, should we keep Ziggy? Which... You know, how do, how do you answer that? I wasn't playing all the time, so I could have easily been selfish and said, nah. But I truly, deep down inside, I felt like he was getting the ingredients together right, and you could just feel something was happening really good. And my response was, it's not for me to tell you whether to keep Ziggy Schmidt or not. I think we're moving in the right direction, and I think things are coming together. And there's a good feeling in our locker room as a group of guys, but it's not my decision. It is the team's decision. There's a feeling throughout our guys without speaking on behalf or for them. We just have a feeling that something's happening here, you know, and I'm glad he did take me aside. Now at the time it was awkward as anything in that, you know, I don't want to be the guy that gets the coach fired or I'm not, I'm not that type of guy. But again, I think Ziggy was just getting those ingredients right, and we had a good feeling. And, you know, I, I'm glad they, they didn't get rid of him because 2008 may not have been 2008 without Ziggy Schmidt. For what it's worth, Mark McCullers says he does not recall that meeting. No, I don't recall that, but I will tell you this. Ziggy was my guy. He was my choice. I fought hard to get him to Columbus. So I wanted him to be successful. I wanted the club to be successful, you know, but, but also... You know, this was my plan. This was my vision, and this was my guy. And I remember going to his condo in New Albany in July of 2007. We'd, we'd just lost another game that we should have won. It, you know, it was just a, it was kind of a bad place. And frankly, you know, Z Ziggy was in a bad place. I mean, this is a guy who's had a lot of success. You know, it really wasn't coming together at that at that point in time, I don't think, at least not like we wanted it to. And I told him at that moment, I said, look, I need to know that you're still in this, okay? And if you're not, that's fine. We'll move on. But if you are, I'm in it with you. And, and I'm not going anywhere, and I'm going to keep working my tail off with you to get us where we want to go. That was the only conversation that we had, you know, about his, you know, immediate future there in Columbus. And he gave me the answer I wanted, and that's all I needed to hear. Sean Mitchell, who covered the crew for the Columbus Dispatch during this time, remembers that Siggy Schmidt's mood was definitely down. If I recall correctly, it was an Open Cup game they lost. You know, he played sort of an Open Cup lineup, so it was a mix of regulars and young guys. But I think in the post game, he said, he kind of went on this tirade and, and said, well, you know, maybe it's me. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I can't get, get through to these guys anymore. Maybe, you know, maybe, I, maybe I'm the problem. Essentially saying, maybe I should quit. And, and the next day, the headline in the district, banner headline stripped across the top of the sports page is, Schmidt says he might quit. You know, the follow-up to that was, told me his wife read the story, uh, his wife Valerie, and said, you know, I think Ziggy's words were, he, she, she was going to hit me in the head with a frying pan, you know, and, and said so Valerie's just berating him, saying, you're no quitter, what are you doing saying this stuff? I can't believe you'd say this, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it was Valerie that kind of shook him out of his uh, woe is me thing and, and uh, you know, maybe made him recommit. And then a couple of days later, he said, no, no, you know, I'm totally committed. I, you know, I said it in the heat of the moment. I, you know, I'm all in on this thing. The 2007 crew became very streaky once the new members were added. They reeled off a nine-game stretch where they only lost once. 
followed by a nine-game stretch where they only won once. Unfortunately, they started off the season with a 10-game span where they only won one time as well. So even when they were able to muster a couple of wins at the end of the regular season, they were still three points shy of making the playoffs. However, there were reasons for optimism. Once again, here's Sean Mitchell. They finished very strong in 07. I think you started to see flashes from, uh, certainly from Robbie Rogers uh, late in that 07 season. Scalotto had a few games under his belt, started to figure some things out. You know, you could kind of see that. He was going to be uh, something pretty special uh, by the end of that 07 season. So, you know, it, it, it really started to turn at the end of that year. Gijay had proven that he was a creative force in the midfield and he was named team MVP. He was also voted as one of the best 11 players in MLS and was fourth in the league in assists, despite not even being in the league until after the first month of the season. Meanwhile, Alejandro Moreno led the team in goals and led the league in fouls suffered for the third straight year. That may not seem like the best thing to be known for, but the crew were generating valuable opportunities from those set pieces. And while the crew did miss the playoffs, Mark McCullers remembers a call in September that might have changed the fortunes of that season. There uh, was some optimism you know, towards the end of 2007, and I distinctly remember that horrible, horrible flop by Kerry Zavagnin in Kansas City, and I remember writing an email to Ivan Gazidis and copying Clark Hunt. Ivan Gazidis was the deputy commissioner of Major League Soccer at the time. He's since moved on to running teams like Arsenal and AC Milan. Clark Hunt was the investor operator of the crew. It's one of those where you should top shelf it and not hit send. Uh, but I did. I hit send, and I was very emotional, and I was very upset. Uh, the, the result was that uh, the league asked me to be on the referee committee. <laughs> I said, okay, well, if you're, if you're so passionate about this, Mark, why don't you, you know, uh, roll up your sleeves and, and get to work? But, but uh, nevertheless, I think there was still some, you know, some optimism, especially coming from that place in the middle of the season in 2007 that was a tough situation. Uh, so I think we were optimistic going into 2008. You know, we had Gijay re-signed. Uh, we had uh, some pieces to the, you know, to the puzzle uh, that we felt very confident about. Before we dive back into the 2008 season, let me tell you about Keep It Simple Socks. Three reasons why you should check out KeepItSimpleSocks.com. Ready? Number one, they like this podcast and they wanted to sponsor it. That's enough for me. But if you're still not convinced, fine. Here's reason number two. They make ridiculously comfortable socks that make your feet feel as if they're being kissed by angels. I mean, I, I'm just guessing on what the angels thing would feel like, but they're super comfortable is the point. And reason number three, they made these really cool saved the crew socks. So if you're not sure which ones to buy, that's a great start. Plus, they're based in Columbus. They have a ton of really awesome sock designs to choose from. Again, comfort this podcast. They made the Save the Crew socks. What's not to love? KeepItSimpleSocks.com. Easy. Brace yourselves. We are more than halfway through the second episode of a podcast about the 2008 team, and we're actually going to start talking about that 2008 season right after we talk about the 2008 preseason. After all, good teams build camaraderie in the preseason. And by all accounts, that 2008 team got along famously. Dunk it out and shares a story about some of the preseason activities that helped bring the team together. We're sitting down in preseason and the coaching staff's there, you know, it's preseason, you're busting your hump. It's so hard, you know, like you're tired. So the coaches say, okay, lads, you guys have been working your asses off. Everyone can have one beer. So everyone's like, awesome. Let's have a beer together as the team. The boys are at this big German place, you know, that Ziggy kind of set up. Everyone's like, yeah, I'll take you know, one of them in Oktoberfest or this or that, you know, whatever comes to us down the end of the table. And Frank's is like, what's your, what's your biggest bear you got? I'll take that with a Kolsch. And this German guy comes back with dust boot. It is like, as a massive boot of bear and sits it in front of Frankie. I thought mine was like a little ridiculous, you know, I got a stone because he was getting the biggest thing they had. So this boot comes out and like, literally, I'm not joking, we shit ourselves because we're like, oh no, we're going to, like, they are going to be pissed. The coaching stuff, it's almost like they've given us this opportunity to all have a beer together and cheers with everyone and the staff and that. And now it looks like we're taking the piss, like, because we've ordered, well, Frankie's ordered literally just a boat of beer. We quickly, using our leadership skills and, uh, thing we take it over the coach's table plonk it down 
and say, we ordered this for you guys. We were thinking possibly you guys might want to have a drinking competition with us. So, you know, they they you know, they backed themselves, the coaching staff. Little did they know. We had a couple of guys that, to be honest with you, not big drinkers. Chad Marshall could put down that whole boot in five seconds. He just He's just a big guy. He just, you know, he's got, he can open his throat and away it goes, you know. Um, he wouldn't have been able to walk straight for a day afterwards, but he could do that. So the coaches like have a look at each other, you know, Bobby and Lap and and you know Tucker was there with them, and they I think they think they've got a chance. So I think we pulled up four guys, they pulled up four guys, and we had a race. I don't think I touched the boot because it was gone before it got to me. They had probably had a quarter of theirs. We'd finished ours. They said, if you beat us, we'll give you next morning off practice and you guys can have another beer. You know, so all the lads were like into it. We're like, hey, and they win. Well, you know, it was it was a, a, just, again, a story that, you know, brought everyone together and it made the team kind of, you know, just that that's how the group was together. It was fun, you know. Could have been really bad because Frank's ordered a freaking boatload of beer by mistake, actually. It wasn't on purpose, but it recovered and turned into something really cool. So the misfits had like kind of done it again. The bad news bears had like come come back together and bought it together. So it was, it was uh, to me, that makes me laugh and smile remembering that type of stuff. The crew also spent part of their training camp in England. And it was during that trip that the black and gold were able to fully realize just what kind of superstar they had on their hands in Guillermo Barros-Skiloto there was a Champions League match that some of the players and staff wanted to attend. It was at Old Trafford, the home of Manchester United. No big deal, right? Getting a Champions League ticket to see one of the biggest clubs in the world? You know, some of the players were going, and you know, I mean, tickets weren't uh, necessarily cheap. But I think Gishe made a comment to someone like, oh, you know, like, where are you sitting? And they were just like, oh, no, we can't afford a ticket, so you know, we're just going to go to a bar near the stadium, and you know, we're just going to watch. He's just like, no, 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 no. Like, and made a quick phone call. You know, I think he, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was Carlos Tevez's agent had a suite at Old Trafford. If you weren't paying attention to world soccer back then, Carlos Tevez was one of the biggest stars in the world. But he and Guije knew each other because they were both teammates at Boca Juniors. You know, Guije made a phone call, and then he just told, you know, these team staff guys, you know, whether it's trainers um, you know, the administrator, you know, equipment guys, you know, just people, people like that. I mean, guys not making a ton of money and who do a lot for the players, you know, kind of behind the scenes and, and Gijé is like, no, no problem. He hooked them up, told them where they needed to go. And they ended up watching the game from a suite. Again, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, kind of like these big name players that came in MLS just for a paycheck or just, uh, you know, kind of coast. I mean, and here's a guy who is looking out for, you know, the little guy, so to speak, but you know, the, the, you know, the guys who do the stuff behind the scenes to make everything work for the players, you know, and he looked out for them. And I mean, not only do you look out for it, it's not even like, oh, he bought them like, oh, here's some cheap tickets, uh, you know, in the nosebleeds or, you know, wherever. I mean, it was like, no, he hooked them up with a suite. He was so laid back and one of the guys in that 2008 season at that point in time, he was almost like, you know, a brother, like him and Robbie Rogers would be out getting coffee and, you know, Robbie was learning Spanish and, you know, we'd, we'd cruise over and they'd be trying to speak Spanish together, hang out. And I thought that was really cool because I think you saw that connection on the field. Every time Guillermo got the ball, he knew Robbie Rogers could run like roadrunner. So he'd just play the ball long in that corner for Robbie to get on the end of. And, I mean, I think you could tell from the outside watching eventually after the fourth time, Robbie would look over and be like, dude, dude give me a break, you know. But they just had a great connection on the field, and I think that that showed. And, you know, Guillermo was such a good player. He could connect with anyone. And that was the thing. Like, he came, and he was, like, determined to get the most out of his American experience. You know, I mean, we had, you know, players have been here for years and never learned English. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. It takes a lot of effort, and, and there's a lot of failure along the way, you know, to try to learn another language when you're in another country. But Gijé just, he was just like, you know, he was just going to learn English and he would carry around his little notebook and he would write down, if he said something wrong and you told him it was wrong, he would write down the right way so he could get it right the next time. Like he just was undeterred. I mean, he truly embraced like everybody on the team. It wasn't like he was like, oh, I'm a superstar. I mean, he specifically requested that Steve Lenhart, who was a rookie, 
from a college that nobody ever even heard of. And he's just like, I want him to be my roommate, you know, because he figured, okay, here's a young player. I can you know, teach him stuff. Plus, I mean, I, th I think they just got along. Again, a superstar on the road. He's like requesting like this. I'm not insulting Steve, but I'm saying like a no-name rookie wants him to be his roommate on the road. And he loved everything around town. I mean, he was just a guy who he was not a big shot in, in any way, you know, for as talented as he was. Also in England, the crew found a player who was looking for a change of scenery. In February 2008, when I received a phone call from my agent at that time, I only have four months left in my contract in France. And he asked me if I want to go to Blackburn uh, in England because the crew, they did a preseason over there um, because the coach uh, was looking for a left back. That's Gino Padula. Coming from the same Argentine soccer background as Guillermo, Gino took a vastly different path to MLS. Hailing from Lanús, which is less than 30 miles from La Plata, where Guille grew up, Padula actually signed with River Plate, the hated rivals of Boca Juniors. But he only played there for a few games. After a brief stint in Spain, he found his way to England, and it was in England where the legend of Gino Padula truly begins. He ended up playing for London-based club Queen's Park Rangers, a team with a rich history that was up to its neck in scandals and financial woes during the mid-2000s. QPR fans were looking to find anything to distract them from the team's precarious situation, which was no small task, given there were fears the club could soon be folded. Gino helped QPR secure promotion back up to the championship, otherwise known as the second division of English soccer. Because of his involvement on that team, Gino became almost a cult icon for the fans at QPR. He's even been honored on the field at their home ground since his playing days ended. In the early spring of 2008, Gino Padula was playing in France, and he wasn't thrilled with that arrangement. That was a beautiful city, nice weather, 20 minutes from the beach, but they didn't play. So when you don't play, you, you don't feel happy. And my wife, she didn't see me happy, so I went to England. After my first practice, uh, she started talking to me about the city, about uh, Columbus, the city is not very expensive. Um, so I'm feeling like he looks some interesting after the first practice because he's, he talked to me like a father, you know, like you will love the city, you, so, and after that we play a, a, a friendly game against Everton. And I think I did very well, and, and Siggy made the decision to offer to me a contract. But Gino wasn't sure what to make of his new city. I, I tried to search on Google about Columbus Crew, about U.S. I know the country, but about soccer in U.S. because I didn't have that much information. Right now, everyone knows MLS, everyone knows players. But in 2008, you know, 10 years ago, it was a little different. He also decided to hide the fact that he would be moving from his wife to play a trick on her. At that time, my, my wife, she, she was in France. And that night, I remember I called my wife. I say, well, no, I, I played terrible and they, they didn't offer to me a contract. So I had to back to France. I wait till the day after and she picked him up me in the airport and she looked upset and she tried to be close to me, say, don't worry, uh, we will figure out where we can go. And I give an envelope to her and say, okay, I, I just bring a, a gift to you from, from England. And I give the, the envelope and that was $1 inside. And she didn't realize what's going on. And my brother-in-law said, you have to think, he have an offer. And I started laughing and say, yeah, we have to move to U.S. And she started crying, you know, because uh, we, we were looking forward to move somewhere. And, and our Eastern in Columbus started that day. So, Gino, did you get in trouble for lying to your wife about moving halfway across the world? Nah, I never been in trouble. <laughs> nah, nah. I, she knows me for 20 years. Uh, I do these kind of jokes all the time. Gino plugged one of the final holes on the crew roster. You know, you're like, okay, who's this guy? You know, we've got a gaping hole at left back, and this is going to be our guy. But what are you going to get? Like, I think he'd been injured even uh, the, the year previously, like when he was still in Europe. And so it's like, okay, we've got like this injured guy that doesn't play much that nobody's heard of, and he's going to be our left back. And he's phenomenal. Gino was tremendous at stealing the ball, usually cleanly, but in a way that somehow left his man sprawled out on the field. Fans ate it up. 
His tenacity, technical ability, and fearlessness were easily identifiable, as was his long-flowing jet-black hair and goatee. And when he was paired with another long-haired, technically gifted, and fearless tackler in Frankie Haydick, the 2008 Columbus Crew defense hit another gear. With the addition of Padula, the crew now had two outside backs who deployed like heat-seeking missiles on counter-attacking wingers and forwards, who tried to win with speed on the flanks. Neither Gino or Frankie was the fastest guy in the league, but their positional awareness coupled with their flawless technique and devastating tackling made it especially difficult to attack the crew wide. Another fantastic contribution Gino brought to the table was the rapport he developed with his countryman, Guillermo Barro Scalotto. Well, when, when I arrived, um, I remember the first day I met Guillermo. Uh, he was in the lobby. Uh, he was in the computer, and we started talking, you know. Because my first professional soccer game in River Play, we played against Gimnasia, and I had to mark Guillermo that game. So uh, I know him because he played in Boca Juniors. I didn't know he remembered me, but we started talking. Uh, we talked about the coach. We talked about the city, so I have a little information. Argentina's soccer culture, including two players from Boca and River, had found its way into the Columbus Crew locker room. The transformation of the Columbus Crew was nearing its final stages. Ziggy Schmidt had completely overhauled the roster, to the point that only three members of that 2004 Supporter Shield winning team remained. Chad Marshall, Duncan Outen, and Frankie Haydick. So, would this new-look crew finally be able to deliver the results that were expected on the field? Those questions loomed as Toronto FC made their way down to Columbus to face off with the crew for the first game of the 2008 season. Toronto was in just their second year of existence, and having won just six games in their inaugural season, their fans were now hoping to cheer them to more wins in 2008. Maybe that's why nearly 3,000 of them traveled to watch this game. It was far and away one of the largest groups of fans to ever travel to Crew Stadium to support their team. Surrounded by that atmosphere, the 2008 season got underway. Brian Carroll started that game for the crew as one of the two defensive midfielders. Carroll had been selected by the San Jose Earthquakes in the 2007 expansion draft, but he wouldn't play there as he was quickly dealt to the crew for forward Kai Kamara. Carroll brought a level of professionalism and leadership to the crew locker room. Here's Sean Mitchell talking about Brian Carroll. BC is talking about another wit smart guy, you know, when you look at a, at a guy like Will Trapp, I see a lot of Brian Carroll in, in, in Will Trapp. I mean, just that, that smart, that connecting pass, that on-field general sort of thing. BC did it very well, very quietly. As the crew got going in the game against Toronto, the Canadian side got some early chances, but nothing came of them. Suddenly, from out of nowhere, Brian Carroll sent a quick free kick from midfield to the chest of Adam Moffat, who was streaking in the middle of the Toronto half of the field completely unguarded. Moffat took a touch and suddenly, shockingly, sent a low curling screamer past the Toronto goalkeeper. Steve Sirk remembers that goal. I was watching the game with Dante Washington, and we were just sitting up in the upper deck. Dante and I just looked at each other. We were like, what? Like, what just happened? How did he do that? He just hammered it. That goal became known as the Moffat Rocket, and the crew had an amazing start to the season. The Toronto fans who had traveled all that way stopped making noise, at least momentarily. But just before halftime, the TFC fans thought they had a breakthrough. A penalty was called on Danny O'Rourke. He had fouled Jeff Cunningham, who was now playing for Toronto. It wouldn't be the first time the crew saw a former player playing for the wrong team in 2008, by the way. More on that later. However, William Hesmer stopped the penalty for the crew, and when the ball squirted free across the goal line, Adam Moffat was there to clear it out of danger. Here's how the call from Dwight Burgess, the longtime voice of the crew, sounded on that day. On the 45th minute. Save! Rebound! It's cleared away by Moffat! He's doing it at both ends! It was quite the sequence. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely go look it up on YouTube. Moffat's backstory is pretty cool, as Steve Sirk will explain. Growing up in Scotland, when he was playing football manager, and uh, he just, for whatever reason, he picked the Columbus crew as, as, his, as his team to manage. So he knew about, like, Stern John. I remember that's the thing. He's like, oh, I remember Stern John. 
because, you know, when Adam Moffat was like 10 years old or whatever, you know, Stern John was tearing it up for the crew and 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 Moffat's managing the crew and, and football manager. So yeah, he went from uh, playing with them in a video game in Scotland as a kid to, to act, you know, actually playing for the club. Meanwhile, that Alejandro Moreno guy, you know, the one who takes all the abuse, well, he got his first goal of the 2008 season, and that one pretty much sealed the deal. The crew won two to nothing, and they'd officially started off their 2008 campaign with a win. As Ali Moreno ran to celebrate, he initially went to the west side of the stadium, when suddenly he veered towards a swarming mass of humanity that had gathered in the east side of the stadium, the northeast corner of the stadium, to be specific. In fact, this group was even louder than the Toronto contingent of fans, and many of them were sitting together because of a stadium construction project that had removed some seats. And after just one game, something massive had begun to take shape in the northeast corner of Crew Stadium. Stay tuned for a quick preview of next week's episode. But first, I wanted to say thanks again to all of you for listening. We had a ton of feedback after episode one, and I have to tell you, it meant the world to me. I look forward to hearing what you all think of episode two. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and get each episode as soon as it's available. And if you could rate and review the podcast as well, you have no idea how much that helps us and helps others find it. Additionally, I need to say a big thank you to my wife, Melissa. She's been extremely supportive through all the late nights and long weekends I used to make this podcast. So thanks again, honey. I'd also like to thank Todd Markowitz and Cody Welling at 97.1 The Fan who believed in this project, as well as John Zadar, who did all the artwork for the podcast episodes, as well as our logo. A huge thanks has to go to all the guests who gave their time to help tell this story, as well as Victoria Beckman, who helped with translation on parts of this podcast. She's also a privacy and cybersecurity attorney at Frost Brown Todd, so if you're in need of that type of legal advice, look her up. And finally, all game audio has been provided by Columbus Crew SC. You know, the crew. So uh, thanks to them. And now here's a quick preview of next week's episode. Everyone was pretty much sitting on the north end of the stadium, and we sort of made our home at 137, which is just right behind the goal. So we moved forward with building the stage. We knew because that's where the supporters groups had been that, that we were going to have to to figure that out. They look like Argentinian fans because they chanting the entire game. We're going to let these guys come in and take over our house. And I walked into something I've never seen at that stadium before. I mean, there was brawling, there was tear gas, there were guys getting cuffed. Now I'm looking back and people are holding their uh, crosses, you know, on their necks. They're more drops of terror. So you're looking for a unique way to show off your company, organization, or event, right? You're drowning in unwanted branded pens, stress balls, and sunglasses? The guys at Keep It Simple Socks have the solution you're looking for. They are your custom sock experts based right out of Central Ohio, specializing in working with you to create and supply your own custom designs. Head on over to Keep It Simple Socks today. That's KeepItSimpleSocks.com today and get started on working with their designers on creating your own unique custom designed sock to stand out from the crowd. Put your best foot forward with Keep It Simple Socks today.